You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gentlemen, we are to probably one of my more favorite sections in this entire syllabus. And so it's a shame, in a sense, that it's all having to be condensed into one night. So that's my poor planning, and I apologize for that. There are many rabbit trails that uh, could be profitably chased, and we're just not going to have time to chase them all. But we will chase a few for a bit. We are on page 39 of your syllabus with the sixth and final section called Fundamentalism, 1925 to the present. 38 for you, okay, thank you. Page 38 for you. All right. A little text box at the beginning about German higher criticism. We've looked at it uh, briefly in our in our book earlier, we'll just re- be reminded of some of it right here. So, what is German higher criticism? It's a mid-19th century way of interpreting the scriptures, here's the key, based upon an anti-supernaturalism presupposition. In other words, they come to the scriptures with a pre-understanding that supernatural activity cannot exist, does not exist. So they are pure naturalists. The method was pioneered by Ferdinand Christian Barr, 1792-1860, at Tübingen School of Theology. I think I've mentioned Tübingen before. It's in Tübingen, Germany. Can any good thing come out of German theological education? And I would postulate, no, it cannot. The basic method of this type of study is to examine the biblical text based on its presupposition of anti-supernaturalism, to determine literary form, date, authorship, and purpose. Now, if you've been coming on Sunday morning to, the, to uh, Cornell's Daniel study, he has mentioned this over and over and over again, how liberal commentators with their anti-supernaturalistic uh, presupposition immediately rule out the possibility of predictive prophecy, and thus, of course, Daniel could not have been written when it was written, and they postulated to have been written several centuries later, under a pseudonym and pretending to be prophetic when it was all merely recording history as it had already occurred. So that's what that kind of of uh, anti-supernaturalism presupposition leads to, is a complete trashing of the scriptures. In the hands of the unbelieving scholars who had an evolutionary view of human history, the Bible and the Old Testament in particular, all liberalism enters into the seminaries through the Old Testament department. Okay? That is the weak spot, is the Old Testament department. And was assumed to be full of errors and myths. This line of teaching first polluted German Lutheranism before it was exported to American seminaries and pulpits by young academics that went to Germany to receive their doctoral training. By the early 20th century, most of the mainline seminaries and denominations had slid into theological liberalism manifesting itself in the denial of such basic beliefs as inspiration, depravity of man, redemption through the blood of Christ, the second coming, the Trinity, deity and virgin birth of Christ, and the creation and fall. 
it pretty much guts the Bible from the beginning to the end. And so what do you have in liberalism? As Machen argued, you do not have a, some aberration of Christianity. You do not have Christianity at all. It is an absolute, completely different religion masquerading under the name of Christianity. Okay, So just kind of hang on to that because we're going to circle back and you'll see how it has exploded again. Now, 1925. <laughs> Let's tell you a story. 1925. It was a Friday morning, 9 a.m., the small town of Dayton, Tennessee. The trial of the state of Tennessee versus John Scopes began jury selection. John Scopes was accused of teaching evolution in, public, in the public classroom in violation of Tennessee law. Let that sink in. He was accused of teaching evolution in the public school system in violation of Tennessee public law. This law had been passed six months earlier and prohibited the teaching of a, of a theory of origins that denied divine creation as taught in the Bible. That was 100 years ago. Immediately, check it out, immediately the ACLU advertised that they would pay the legal expenses for anyone who would challenge the law. At this point, John Scopes stepped forward. This was to be the first nationally broadcast trial. Okay, think O.J. Simpson kind of publicity. Okay, the first nationally broadcast trial and featured two well-known personalities heading up both the, def the defense and the prosecution. Defending Scopes was this character right here, Mr. Clarence Darrow. He was a militant agnostic who had achieved fame successfully arguing an insanity defense in the case of two self-confessed murderers who had killed a man, quote, just to see what it would be like. Okay, that's how he achieved his national fame. William Jennings Bryant, we'll have to make him a little bit smaller so he fits in our screen here, hold on. Very distinguished man, by the way. There we go. How's that? More distinguished looking, huh? No hat? William Jennings Bryant, three times Democrat presidential candidate. Former Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson was the attorney for the prosecution. During the trial, Darrow made every attempt to make his words obscurantist Christianity, close quote, the issue, even at one point convincing Bryant to take the stand. Now, this thing was a media circus. This is the lead prosecutor in the trial is now convinced he should take the stand. Bryant gladly took the witness stand to be able to speak out in favor of Christianity. Madero managed to portray him as a fool who believed in non-scientific ideas like the origin of the sun on the fourth day of creation and the forming of Eve from Adam's rib. Darrow had a field day with Bryant. At one point, the other prosecuting attorney complained, what is the purpose of this examination? I mean, I thought we were here to convict this guy of, you know, try him and convict him of this violation of Tennessee law. Bryant then interrupted. The purpose is to cast ridicule on everybody who believes in the Bible, and I am perfectly willing that the world should know that these gentlemen have no other purpose than ridiculing every Christian who believes in the Bible. So this, the Scopes trial itself was merely a pretense, a running in the background to the real 
issue, the real issue. Darrow snapped back, we have the purpose of preventing bigots and ignoramuses from controlling the education of the United States, and you know it, that is all. So this was a trial, in a sense, of the Bible in a public court. In the actual trial, Scopes was found guilty, uh, and after he entered a last-minute uh, plea of guilty, but by that time the damage had been done. Darrow had successfully played into a sympathetic press corps whose newspaper accounts were highly slanted and fundamentalism never recovered from that black eye. Okay? From that point forward, fundamentalism retreated from the public square and circled the wagons as a lost cause. 1925, a little less than 100 years ago. So, what caused the majority of Christians, this was still conceived of as a Christian nation at that point, what caused the majority of them to reject fundamentalism? Well, there are a number of possible or reasons here. Uh, the first is the Enlightenment of the 18th century, so the 17th century Enlightenment. The idea that knowledge is no longer grounded in biblical revelation, but built upon human reason. Do you remember we read about this? Human reason is now the basis of, of knowledge, no longer biblical revelation. Began with David Hume, who postulated that God's existence can't be proved. We have an Immanuel Kant. Religion is not so much about God, but about people's religious experience. And then German higher criticism itself that just ran like a, like a tank uh, through the seminaries and devastating them in every direction. 1859, another contributing factor to this is the uh, publication uh, by Charles Darwin of, and this is the title of the book, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Okay, that's the full title of that book. As you might imagine, it had some, um, it's got some interesting theories built into it. But it took 19th century uh, Europe and America by storm. Further contributing to the rejection of fundamentalism was the Industrial Revolution. It brought about an increasing technology and prosperity, and with it, the idea of a, of a growing post-millennialism, the notion that the society is getting better, mankind is getting better, we're, we're smarter, we're more educated, we're more prosperous, we're conquering diseases, life is, is just on a continual upward plane. And the Industrial Revolution disrupted many things, took a lot of people off the farms, moved them into the cities, lots of dislocation, all of these things chipped away at the foundations of the church. How did the fundamentalists respond? How did they respond? Well, here are just a few for us. So probably one of the important responses, what was called the Niagara Conference. Uh, you know, it's probably say 1895. You might want to check, uh, change that. It's 1875. Sorry about that. It's a typo. 1875. It actually meant 1875 to 1897, so that meant for, what is that, 22 years. Okay, so what was it? What was the Niagara Conference? It was an 
an annual conference of Bible believers who gathered together to study the Bible and to seek a deepening spiritual life. That was its purpose, kind of an annual conference. They met at the Queen's Royal Hotel in the town of Niagara-on-the-Lake in Ontario, Canada, a very beautiful town, okay, right across the, the border from, uh, from New York and uh, near the, the Niagara Falls from the Canadian side. So annually, people would come there to this beautiful hotel, gorgeous grounds, and they would have a Bible conference for a week or so. It was a family vacation kind of thing. And they brought in many, many uh, speakers uh, over that 22-year period of time. So let me read you. And uh, for some of you, these names are going to be uh, very familiar. For others of you, perhaps not as much. kind of depends how widely read you are. But but I want to read these names to you because these are all uh, foundational men (laughs) of fundamentalism. So... James Hall Brooks was a Presbyterian pastor and the leader of the Niagara Bible Conference until his death in 1897. Uh, The Baptist preacher from Boston, A.J. Gordon, okay? A.J. Gordon, which founded Gordon College, okay? Gordon College outside of Massachusetts, was another key leader of the conference. He edited another conference periodical, um, one of the historian, uh, a historian has called Gordon, quote, the acknowledged patriarch of Baptist millenarians. Millenarians, meaning those who, who um, believed and taught a premillennial thousand-year earthly rule of Christ. His name was uh, A.J. Gordon. A.J. Gordon. Uh, patriarch of Baptist millenarians due to his teaching and the strong influence his paper had for premillennialism among early um, Presbyt- uh, early fuzz- fundamentalist, sorry. Canadian Presbyterian minister, W.J. Erdman. W.J. Erdman. Have you ever heard of Erdman Publishing? Okay. This is, this is of that line. Uh, was secretary for the conference, skilled in expository Bible readings. Bible readings, meaning that he would read the scriptures not in a monotone, but in a very expressive fashion. Okay. Uh, and in order to read that way, it requires you one interpret the text before one stands up to read it. Baptist evangelist George Needham, along with John Inglis, founder of the conference, continued to play a part for, for years to come as the organizer, contributed messages. Um, the women's messages were um, brought frequently by Miss Emma Dreyer, who was long associated with D.L. Moody. She conducted the afternoon meetings for the ladies. Other contributor uh, notable contributors and speakers at the conference included Methodist W.E. Blackstone. Okay, W.E. Blackstone, his books in support of premillennialism are still a good read. Notice he's a Methodist. So we've got a Presbyterian, we've got a Baptist, we've got a Methodist. What are they sharing in common? They're sharing a, a commitment to uh, fundamental truth and premillennialism. Uh, let's see. Baptist A.C. Dixon. Presbyterian A.T. Pearson, A.C. Gabeline, C.I. Schofield, these are all Presbyterians, Nathaniel West, J. Wilbur Chapman, J. Hudson Taylor, founder of Modern Missions, Reformed Episcopalian William Nicholson. Okay. By the way, um, this, I'm going to say it here because this is where I'm remembering it. Uh, one of the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary was a Reformed, or was a Reformed Episcopalian. 
Right? So Dallas Seminary has Reformed Episcopalian roots in it. These men were prophetic, prolific speakers and writers, active in soul-winning and missionary endeavors and leaders in, the old, in their own fields. So just a flavor of uh, some of the men who were really theological giants of their age. So, as we see here, what, what did the conference focus on? There would be a theme for the week, and there would be a series of messages that would be brought. So one year would be the inerrancy of Scripture, another year the divinity of Christ, another year the virgin birth, another year the substitutionary atonement, another year the physical resurrection and impending return of Christ. And they would rotate through these topics, bringing in uh, preachers and speakers from all over the English-speaking world. It was, um, it was a very significant event and a very popular at that time. So, the Niagara Bible Conference. What else? Well, we have the Schofield Reference Bible, published in 1909. So there, C.I. Schofield is the first time to have a, a, a study Bible that integrated his theological understanding into, into notes within the text. Now it's kind of common, right? We have MacArthur Study Bible. We have the, um, uh, what's the Reformed one? I can't remember that the Sproul one did one. Um, what's it called? Reformation. Reformation Study Bible. Thank you. I mean, this, there's a bunch of them out there. Okay, but C.I. Schofield is one of the originators. Schofield wasn't first. Uh, not, not first first. Who was who, who first first? Geneva. Ah, the Geneva. Yes, thank you. Yes. Okay. But the Schofield, the importance of the Schofield Reference Bible is that he integrated his understanding of dispensational premillennialism into the notes. And the Bible became very, very popular, and thus dispensational premillennialism began to really grow in its uh, adherence among the, uh, I hate the word laity, but I'm going to use it just because it's descriptive. And um, the hoi polloi, that's, yeah, there you go, the hoi polloi. And now what happened was a, a waning of postmillennialism and a rising of dispensational premillennialism. Now, another thing that led to the waning of postmillennialism was World War I. World War I sort of dashed everybody's ideas that the world was getting better because the world was introduced to industrial-level warfare for really the first time in its history. And, you know, millions of people slaughtered wholesale. And that kind of let the air out of the balloon of, of the post-millennial hope. So, Schofield. We have the, the rise of uh, dispensationalism itself. With uh, Mr. John Nelson Darby. Okay. John Nelson Darby. 1800 to 1882. He was a Brit. And... Um, Credited with systematizing dispensational thought. Okay, so we have Darby. We have there. We go. We have the fundamentals. The fundamentals. So, what were the fundamentals? Fundamentals, published, you see, 1910 to 1915, so over a five-year period of time, were a series of periodicals, uh, not periodicals, but, but relatively thin books, uh, in which 
Each issue was devoted to a topic. Again, inerrancy of Scripture, divinity of Christ, virgin birth, substitutionary atonement, physical resurrection, impending return of Christ. The idea was to recover these doctrines for the church. And so a couple of uh, oil magnates from Southern California, Lyman and Milton Stewart, funded this thing personally, and three million copies were distributed for free to pastors and adult Sunday school teachers all over the United States. Three million copies were distributed. And again, it was, and, and the authors were as varied as the speakers at the Niagara Bible Conference, coming from Methodism, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Baptists, so forth. Again, all trying to to argue for the fundamentals of Christian orthodoxy in the face of the liberal onslaught. 1923. That's not too helpful. That's a little better. So we have here J. Gresham Machen, 1923, and his publication of you can't really see that too good, but you can see that it's a, that's an old copy, beat up spine. His book, Christianity and Liberalism. I think I've recommended it to you before. I'll recommend it to you again. It's not thick. It's a good read. It's a significant read. If you want to grow in these things, then it's on your short list of books to read. Okay? So Christianity and Liberalism. We had the creation of a, of a parallel educational system. Because of the import of German higher criticism into the, into the mainline seminaries, the fundamentalists felt the need to create new schools, to educate a new class of, of pastors. And so there was a tremendous of, amount of, of um, um, pioneering of new educational institutions. So on page 83 in your syllabus, Page 83 of your syllabus, I've reproduced it for you. I have it here, but it's called the Fundamentalist Internet. And let's see. It just shows you there's a lot of boxes. It doesn't really show you much. Let me do this. That's not too good either. Yeah, like I said, page 83. Is the most reliable way to see this. Here's what I want to direct your attention to. On page 83, it begins. Um, these two pages actually could could and should be taped together and, and folded open. But you'll notice Gordon College, founded in 1889, evangelical school. We have Westminster Seminary, 1929. And then turn over to the other page, and under the dispensational heading, again, we, there's a, a waning of postmillennialism, a growing of dispensational premillennialism. You see here the foundation of these new schools. So we have the Moody Bible Institute in 1886. We have um, the Los Angeles Institute, or the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, uh, also known as Biola in 1907, and then Dallas Theological Seminary, 1924. 
These were some of the schools that were founded relatively early on in order to train a new group of pastors and elders to shepherd the people of God. Of course, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles started as just that, a Bible Institute. Eventually, they became accredited. It became a college. They changed the name to Biola College. Um, It was uh, founded by... um, Let's see, is that a true statement? I was about to make a statement, um, and it's not a true statement. So he didn't found it, but he was highly involved in it, was um, um, J. Vernon McGee in, the, in uh, Biola. Anyway, they added Talbot Seminary some years later. We had um, Denver Seminary. We had, um, what's the one here in the Northwest? I forget it. Western. Yes, Western. Uh, is it just Western Seminary? Is that what it's called? Yeah, it was a conservative Baptist school. Yeah. So, again, another one of those schools that was founded in order to basically teach orthodoxy to a new generation of pastors. While we're here, we might as well just kind of look over it a little bit more and you see a few other things. So, under the revivalism movement, you notice D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, talk about him in a minute, Charles Fuller and the old fashioned revival hour. one of the founders of Fuller Seminary, John R. Rice and the Sword of the Lord, the uh, Youth for Christ, the Billy Graham movement, all of these things were were, uh, part of the fundamentalist movement as it began. Okay? Let's see. Is there anything else? Well, well, yeah, we're still looking. You got Bob Jones University, 1927. Conservative Baptist Association of America, 1947, that's CBA. JRB, General Association of Regular Baptists, 1932. J. Frank Norris and the World Baptist Fellowship, that's getting seriously into fundamentalism. Jerry Falwell, and so forth. Okay? You'll notice on page uh, 82 of that, if you decide to peruse it more on your own, you've got footnotes relating to all of those things, okay? So, Bible schools and seminaries was was one response of the fundamentalist movement to to the cultural tsunami of modernism. Separation was another. The idea that uh, when uh, of considering modernism to be apostasy and separating themselves from it. In other words, concluding that these denominations were irretrievably lost and that we needed to separate ourselves and and begin again. Let's see, do I want to list? Nope, that's not the picture I want. Hold on. I'll show you him in a minute. Here we go. This is what I want. Got my pictures out of order. All right. So, this is 1957. That's Billy Graham. I believe that's Yankee Stadium, if I remember right. So, the Billy Graham Crusades, uh, the high water mark was 1957 in his New York City Crusade. Tens of thousands showed up uh, for his crusades. And... The problem was is that he invited liberals and even Roman Catholics to share the platform with him. 
So Billy's theology, although he started in fundamentalism, got broad very quickly. And many within um, the fundamentalist movement separated themselves from Billy Graham as early as 1957, following his New York City crusade. They just concluded that he was too soft on um, orthodoxy and that they couldn't partner with him. So that began, and again, those of you who have grown up in fundamentalist backgrounds and so forth, you understand why um, Billy Graham is persona non grata in a lot of uh, fundamental Baptist, particularly circles. Okay? Um, it relates to, to Billy's white tent. Okay? So, kind of amazing though when you think about it, huh? To stand there and preach uh, salvation by grace through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ to, to 30,000 people. Pretty remarkable. And certainly, um, the Lord blesses the preaching of his word, and there were many who were saved under such conditions. Beyond that, we see um, an emphasis on personal holiness and what was called soul winning. Okay, that terminology is familiar to any of you? Soul winning, you want me to, want me, yeah. We go, we go soul winning after prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Is that when you did it? Saturday morning, I've done Saturday morning uh, soul winning as well. Yes, that's right, soul winning. What is soul winning? Soul winning is door-to-door evangelism. Yeah, so it, it's very much part of a fundamentalist tradition and still carried on in many, many circles. One has to be a soul winner. So it's confrontational evangelism is what it is. So it's, it's, yeah, it's confrontational evangelism. So the emphasis on personal holiness was, um, well, no, no, before I get to that, let me, let, me just, um, let me just show you this picture to sort of illustrate kind of the premier uh, evangelist of the day. All right? So let me make, it, I'll make this a little bigger so you can see it. Okay? This is a former professional baseball player by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was known for his theatrics in his preaching. And uh, calling out people and under condemnation and offering them say, uh, faith, uh, salvation in Christ and Christ alone. Okay, But you can kind of get an idea of some of his poses and positions and so forth. Here's another very famous picture of him. Okay, I think Jim should adopt this pose on a Sunday morning personally. I, I, I think... Yeah, well, Zipline's a modern version, but yeah. The date for um, Billy Sunday is 1862 to 1935. Okay, Famous for impassioned gestures, theatrical poses, and no-nonsense message of repentance. So he was a, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I was going to say teetotaler. That's not really the word I'm looking for. He was a... Um, not an abolitionist. What's the word? A uh, prohibitionist. There's the word I'm looking for. Okay. So part of his message was alcohol is of the demons or of the devil, and you know you need to obviously give it up and so forth, which fit right into 
the, the uh, motif of the day. Okay, So there's old Billy Sunday. His probably most famous sermon is called Payday Someday. Check it out. Read it. It is written from the text in, uh, let's see, that must be Second Kings, I think, uh, where uh, Jehu uh, rides into the city of Samaria and uh, uh, Jezebel is in the, in the second story window looking down on him and she's painted her, her eyes and so forth and he basically says, who's with me? Throw her out. And they chuck her out the window and he rides over her with her chariot splattering her blood everywhere. Goes in and has dinner, gets up after dinner, and he says, I'll see to it, she is a queen's daughter. Go bury her. And they go, and there's nothing left of her but the palms of her hands and the soles of her feet. The dogs ate her in fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah. Okay, and that was his text. His sermon is Payday Someday. Payday Someday. Okay? Yes. Um, Finney, yes. Yes. That, follow that same style. Emotionalism, emotional appeal. Yeah. Yep. 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 Thousand verses of just as I am until everybody comes forward. That's right. Uh, which one? Charles Finney? Oh, Finney. Yeah. Yep. And yes, a rank heretic, Charles Finney. Still claimed by uh, Independent Fundamental Baptists, though, as one of their heralds. Okay. So that's the evangelism side of it. You can kind of get a feel for it, a flavor for it. The personal holiness uh, is probably best represented by what's called the Keswick Movement. And so if you look on page 85 of your syllabus, you'll find something addressing that. A little something called Three Models of Sanctification. Three Models of Sanctification. So, let's just kind of work through it together. So, the three models are what's called the Wesleyan view, the Keswick view, that's not Keswick, it's Keswick, and it's from Keswick, England, and it comes out of the Keswick conferences that occurred on the estate of some lady of standing in British uh, royalty uh, who hosted an annual conference dedicated to the, the idea of holiness, or as was also known, the deeper life. Okay, Anybody ever heard of the deeper life? Okay, Well, you will after this. So there's the Wesleyan view, there's the Keswick or deeper life view, and then there is the Reformed view. So how does sanctification work? Well, under the Wesleyan view, there is a second work of grace. So there is the work of grace that saves you, and then there is a second work of grace that catapults the believer into a state of sinlessness, which is often called entire sanctification. Sin is defined as only that which is, quote, a willful transgression of the known law of God, close quote. All right, so we've got to be careful. We, you know, it's, it's bad, but let's not make it worse than it is. So when they're talking about sinlessness, they are saying that what you are relieved from or delivered from is a willful transgression of the known law of God. Anything that we do not clearly intend to do or are ignorant about is merely a 
mistake under the Wesleyan view. Okay? Spiritual growth takes place after the second work of grace by increasing in love and good works. This is Wesleyan sanctification, as it's classically constructed. This, by the way, is the underpinning of the Pentecostal movement we will see a little bit later this evening. And in the Pentecostal movement, how does one know one has received the second work of grace? It is by speaking in tongues, indeed. That's right. That's how those work. Okay. So, the Wesleyan view. The Keswick view is sort of a middle place, and it is a unique, okay, this is, this is the Keswick view, a unique post-salvation commitment or enlightenment that allows the believer to enter into a victorious and consistent life of obedience. So it's the victorious life. It's the deeper life. The struggle with sin continues, but it is lessened significantly by the new truth that has been understood and accepted. Spiritual growth takes place after that primarily by a passive trust in the work of God appropriately represented by the slogan, let go and let God. Have you ever heard that? Let go and let God. Okay? That is Keswick theology. That is deeper life teaching. And it was um, uh, very predominant in, in this early period of fundamentalism. Okay? So, for example, um, uh, A.W. Tozer was a Keswick taught Keswick theology, okay? So, does that mean you throw away everything he said? Nope. But it means you understand where he is coming from when he addresses issues of holy living and so forth, okay? So, Keswick view. Then we have the Reform view. The Reform view is that there is a lifelong cycle of sin, repentance, renewal, and growth towards Christ-likeness that will only be complete when we meet our Lord. It is best laid out in Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8. This is accomplished through the active discipline of the believer himself who trusts that the Holy Spirit is energizing his efforts. Okay? Some examples from Scripture and so forth. The idea of all of these commands to obedience that are to be obeyed. Now, I'm just kind of finish it out with this. Some common practical errors for those who believe in a Reformed view. If you've been at KCC for any length of time, you have a Reformed view of sanctification, I would imagine. And you hear it here all the time. But, but, some practical errors that can slip in is, for example, uh, we can echo both the Wesleyan and Keswick view when we seem to be waiting for some divine event that will take away the strongest pull of sin and eliminate the need for concentrated self-discipline. Prayers like, Lord, please take away my desire for sin, or Lord, change me, or fill me with your spirit. Okay, These are, these are not expressions of a Reformed soteriology. These are expressions of a Keswick uh, understanding or orientation towards sanctification. Okay. Uh, the Reformed echo the Wesleyan view when they admit that they sin all the time, yet seldom confess it. 
or ask for forgiveness. If confession is not an active part of our prayer life, then we really, although we may articulate that we believe a Reformed view, we live like we are Wesleyans. In other words, that we don't sin anymore. We just make mistakes now and again. Okay? The Reformed can echo the Keswick view when they let go and let God by thinking that the absorption of spiritual teaching alone without practice will change them. In other words, just go to another conference, listen to another sermon, read another book. That will change you. That betrays a Keswick understanding of sanctification. We are to be doers and not hearers of the word alone. Okay? So the Reformed view says there is an active involvement of the human effort and a, and a, and a redeemed will in presenting ourselves <laughs> as a sacrifice to Christ. Okay? Very good. Any questions with that? Does that make sense to you? Okay. How many of you have got Wesleyan background besides Julio? Only one Wesleyan in our midst. Okay. Two. Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, it depends on... Uh, Calvary Chapel is not a monolith, but it definitely leans in that direction. Yes. It, yeah, yeah, probably so. Yeah, Tozer is big in the Calvary Chapel circles. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. There's one of the exaggerations. Right. Yes, that's right. That's right. Okay. Oop, we have one more character here I wanted to tell you about. You guys remember who this fellow is? You old guys do. You young guys, you know who that is? I didn't think you did. That is Jerry Falwell. Okay, that is brother Jerry Falwell. 1933 to 2007. Why does Jerry Falwell make my list? Well, because Jerry Falwell is probably the, the pioneer, the face on the poster for political action. Okay? So this was uh, beginning in the 1970s, the, the, the reemergence of fundamentalism into the political sphere. And uh, this is the, um, the eventual marrying of the Republican Party and the Christian Church in this endeavor. If we can just get a good Republican elected, we'll get some morality around this place. And they, you know, they went whole hog on um, Ronald Reagan and, and all the rest of it. Okay? But it begins with Jerry Falwell, who is a tremendous administrator and organizer. He was the chancellor of Liberty University, pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church, like 30,000 members. I mean, it's a serious operation. And, of course, his son has wrapped his arms around Donald Trump. So he comes from a, a heritage of this kind of church-state closeness. Okay? So political action beginning in the 1970s. A pushback try to recapture public morality. Okay? So, 
These are some of the ways that fundamentalists have responded to their um, getting their tails whipped <laughs> in the public square with the Scopes Monkey trial and uh, the wholesale sellout of mainline denominations uh, to modernism. Charles. Yes. 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 Oh, yeah. The, the World Council of Churches, yes. Yep. That's right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, there's, you know, time would elude me. There are many. This is a fascinating period of our history. And maybe this is a good place for me to talk about this. So I brought three books in uh, to recommend. If this is something that interests you, it interests me. If it interests you, here's some books to get you started, okay? Uh, I'm not going to lend them to you because they're too precious and I might not get them back. But I will let you look at them and you can go find the title of your own. Uh, one is here. This is probably the most accessible off the start. It's called Reforming Fundamentalism by George Marsden. Good historian, Reforming Fundamentalism. Excellent. Well done. Traces through um, the falling of Fuller Seminary. And Fuller Seminary is sort of a test case. Uh, founded in 1947 in response to the fundamentalist movement as an attempt to, to create a middle road um, that was academically robust and respectable in the public square and so forth, and it's the sad state of, of Fuller Seminary. So you can read Marsden's account of it. It's a sympathetic account, by the way. Okay, I, I mentioned to you before Battle for the Bible, and it's the second one. It's um, more Battle for the Bible or something like that um, by Harold Linzel, who was one of the founding faculty members at Fuller his was kind of an uh, insider expose and critique. Marsden is more sympathetic. Okay, probably ought to read both. This book here, this one is a little more academic, but it's fascinating to me. It's uh, written by uh, Jim Owen, who uh, taught history at the Master's Seminary forever. He's like older than dirt. And he wrote this book, The Hidden History of Historic Fundamentalism, 1933 to 1948. Very interesting. Okay, He answers some of the charges against fundamentalism, that they didn't care about social um, um, issues, taking care of the poor and things like that. He responds to those and says, no, that's not accurate. And so he sets the record much more straight. And then this one here by Ernest Sandine, The Roots of Fundamentalism, British and American Millenarianism, 1800 to 1930. Okay, another really good book. All right, so I'll leave them up here at the break. If you want to look at any of them, you may. If this lights your fuse, get one or two this summer and read them. Okay, I, um, I, I don't want to let go of Keswick Theology until I do this. I forgot about it. So this is, uh, you know, I want to ruin a hymn for you all. It's, uh, I've got like two hymns tonight I'm going to ruin for you. This is one of them. Um, because this is classic Keswick Theology. Do we sing this church? Do we sing this here in this church? If we do, we haven't sung it in probably two or three years. Okay. Well, let me read it to you. Is that Fanny? It is Fanny. You're going to beat up on Fanny? I'm just going to uh, just read the text. That's all. Just read the text. So see, see, now you know what Keswick Theology is. See if you can't see it here in the lyrics. So this is Blessed Assurance. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, 
born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Third verse. Perfect submission. All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Okay? That gentleman is Keswick theology. Okay? You asked me how I know he lives. What's the epistemological basis for my faith? He lives within my heart. That's it. Yep. Oh, I could have fun. He walks with me and talks with me and tells me I am his own. Really, what's his voice sound like? Alone in the garden? There's a whole bunch of, of uh, 19th century romance hymns. Okay? We laugh about modern romance hymns. There's a plenty of 19th and early 20th century romance hymns, too. So, anyway, good. Now I ruined it for all of you. <laughs> it's so amazing. We will sing what we would never say. But somehow when we sing, um, there's a great tendency to bypass the mind. So we have to really think hard about that. I had a theology professor who, uh, his rule of thumb was he would not repeat any refrain more than three times. After that, he would stop singing because he was convinced that after three times, the brain gets disconnected and now you're not, you're not paying attention to what you're saying anymore. I'm not saying he's right or wrong. I'm just telling you that was, that was his grisly old approach <laughs> to such things. Okay, let's get to, um, to the rise of Pentecostalism. This one's fun. And if, and if you're looking for, for um, um, really a magisterial treatment of this, of course, um, what's his name? Thank you, Justin Peters. Sorry, Justin, I forgot your name momentarily. That was a brain cramp. Justin Peters um, knows this material inside and out and can do a far better job than I certainly can. But let me at least give you a thumbnail of it, okay? So it goes like this. April 18, 1906, generally credited as the beginning date of the modern Pentecostal movement. On that date, at the Apostolic Faith Mission, located on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. There you go. Old Azusa Street in Los Angeles. Everything good begins in Los Angeles. Actually, it's interesting. As we go through this history of Pentecostal movement, all the nuttiness began in California. Every bit of it. So, uh, the Apostolic Faith Mission located in Zusa Street in Los Angeles, there occurred an outbreak of speaking in tongues. Pastor of the little church was William Seymour, who in close association with his mentor, Charles Parham, had developed the doctrine that speaking in tongues was the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is Wesleyan theology for the second work of grace. 
The Azusa Street Revival lasted until 1909. So it's lasted a lot longer than, the, what was it, Kansas? No, what's the latest one that was out here? What, which one was it? Asbury. Yeah, that one only lasted, what, 30 days or something. So this one lasted for three years. It was visited by thousands, although shortly after its beginning, Parham and Seymour suffered an irreparable breach over Seymour's refusal to prohibit seances and occult trances from the revival services. <laughs> we just can't agree on some fundamental stuff. It, was, it is generally conceded that virtually every Pentecostal movement worldwide can trace its origins directly to the Azusa Street Revival. Okay, so this is the holiness movement. This is Wesleyan theology adapted to uh, a new methodological approach. Okay. The theological roots of Pentecostalism lie in the holiness movement pioneered by John Wesley. Wesley promoted the idea of Christian perfectionism, which he defined as freedom from self-will, desire for nothing but the holy and perfect will of God. Charles Finney, there he is, later equated the idea of Wesley's second work of grace with the concept of the baptism of the Spirit. So we've got, we've got Wesley beginning the idea of Christian perfectionism. We've got Finney um, boot, you know, strapping on the idea that it's the baptism of the Spirit that evidences this. And then we've got Pentecostalism that says the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit is the speaking in tongues. So that's how that whole theological house of cards has been built. Does he? Okay. Got it. Is it. Are they giving it away at the conference here? Do you know? Or I probably saw it anyway. Yeah. Okay, good. Did you hear that? Kosti Hinn's book, what's the name of it again? Defining Deception. Okay, yeah. This stuff is all unimpeachably well documented. Okay, this is not like hearsay or anything like this is the This is the legit. The Pentecost, as the Pentecostal movement developed through the tw early 20th century, the emphasis on divine healing was added to the mandate for speaking in tongues. Now notice this, this unbiblical emphasis on healing coupled with the many charlatans who associated themselves with healing services prompted, oops, not that character, this character here. This is not a character, this is, a, this, is a, this is one of the good guys, okay? Prompted B.B. Warfield to write his 1917 book, Counterfeit Miracles, 1917. Healing ministries received national prominence when beginning in 1948. Oral Roberts began healing crusades, which he later put on television. Okay? They're great promoters. They're great promoters. Okay? So this is how Pentecostalism went from a weird, small meeting in a, in a kind of a rundown section of Los Angeles to becoming this worldwide movement, massive, millions of followers, and billions of dollars flowing through the coffers. Okay? It all traces through this way. Now, here's what I want to do with you for a second, is I want to, take a, I want to follow a rabbit trail here, and I want to, I want to introduce you to one of the, the earlier founders of uh, mainlining Pentecostalism. So what I want to do is I want to introduce you to this lady right here. Somebody, somebody said her name. 
That's Sister Amy. That is right. That is Amy Simple McPherson, 1890-1944. Sister Amy. Okay, She was an, an evangelist. Evangelist. She is the founder of the Foursquare Church in 1923 in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. This is Sister Amy. Don't you love her uniform? And with the cape and the whole deal. I mean, they were big on theatrics. Okay, so that's Sister Amy. Here's another picture of her. Okay. So, Sister Amy. Found the Foursquare Church in 1923. Now, poor Amy uh, had some um, problems. She had some run-ins with the law. So, let's do it this way. Maybe I'll just read to you. You don't mind if I read to you a little bit, do you? She was kidnapped. Or was she? In a time when televangelists seem to inundate the airways with their own cable channels and are just another stop in an evening's channel surfing, it's easier to forget an earlier time when revival meetings were as exciting as the circus coming to town. That is well put. And evangelists were treated like rock stars. For Los Angeles, the premier evangelist of those days was Amy Simple McPherson. She was born Amy Elizabeth Kennedy, 1890, Ontario, Canada. As a, as a child, she traveled with her mother, mother, Minnie, who worked for the Salvation Army. By the way, Salvation Army is Wesleyan in their theology. Okay? Amy's first husband, Robert Simple, immediately a problem, first husband, Robert Simple was a Pentecostal missionary who died in China in 1910. After his death, Amy and their baby daughter returned to the United States. She married her second husband, Harold McPherson, in 1912, and a son was born in 1913. After undergoing a near-death experience in 1913, Amy began traveling and preaching in church meetings throughout Canada and the United States. She separated from McPherson in 1918, and Amy spent the next four years as an itinerant Pentecostal minister attracting a large following. In 1922, she founded the Foursquare Gospel, a Pentecostal mission in Los Angeles, and from that time was L.A.-based. She quickly attracted a huge following, generated a great deal of publicity with her lively meetings which often included speaking in tongues and faith healing. She had a magnetic personality and adopted an angelic appearance. She usually dressed in a white flowing gown and carried a small bouquet of flowers. From the early 1920s, Sister, as she was widely known, broadcast her sermons on the radio, which only increased her renown. 1923, she dedicated an immense circular church, the Angelus Temple, at one and a half million dollar cost, funded by donations. A million and a half dollars in 1923 was no small potatoes. In the Echo Park area, the main sanctuary could see 5,000 people. Services were almost always capacity. In addition to the church's own radio station, an organization was set up which administered a nationwide network of member churches. The citizens of Los Angeles, and particularly her large congregation here, it gets interesting, were stunned to learn on May 18, 1926, that Amy had disappeared while swimming near Venice Beach. Members of her congregation went into the waters where she disappeared, with one person drowning and another dying of exposure. Not a trace of her body could be found. Police investigated hundreds of leads, including a ransom note signed by, quote, the Avengers, close quote, and demanding $500,000 for Sister Amy's safe return. 
After 32 days, Amy stumbled out of the desert near Douglas, Arizona. She claimed that she had been kidnapped, tortured, drugged, and held for ransom in a shack in Mexico. It was only after the kidnappers became careless that she managed to escape and walked for some 13 hours back to civilization. It was soon noted that her shoes showed no sign of a 13-hour hike, and the shack where she claimed she was held could not be found. There was also no satisfactory explanation for the fact that she disappeared in broad daylight in a swimming suit but showed up fully clothed right down to her corset. In support of her story, there had been threats against Amy's life in the previous year and a plot to kidnap her had been foiled in, 1920, in September of 1925. Rumors abounded about what had really happened to her. Some claimed that she had disappeared to have an abortion or that she had run off with a lover. Others claimed that she had been in seclusion to recover from plastic surgery. Ultimately, so many questions were raised and so few answers provided by Sister Amy that the district attorney charged her with perjury. In the trial that followed, the, the prosecution introduced a string of witnesses who said that she had been in various hotels with, with an Angelus Temple radio operator named Kenneth Ormiston. But Sister Amy stuck to her kidnapping story, and in the end she was cleared of the charges. Can you say O.J. Simpson? Through it all, the Angelus Temple continued to draw huge faithful crowds. To this day, what really happened to Sister Amy remains a mystery. In the years that followed, Sister Amy continued her preaching and international tours, but her love affair with the press had ended. Rumors persisted, followed, persistently followed her. She married a third time in 1931, divorced again in 1934, died in 1944 from an overdose of barbiturates. She's buried at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale, California. The Angelus Temple is still a church for the Foursquare Gospel, which claims over 2 million members worldwide. Okay. So there is the sad tale of Amy Simple McPherson, founder of the Foursquare Movement. Well, let's see. How about there's old Jack Hayford? Okay. Jack Hayford, Church on the Way, founded in 1969, former president of the Foursquare. Okay. President of the Foursquare denomination, Jack Hayford. He wrote a song that was super popular for a long time, so let me ruin that one for you with his over-realized eschatology. Okay, so here it is. Majesty, worship his majesty, unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. Majesty, kingdom authority, flow from his throne unto his own, his anthem raise. So exalt, lift up on high the name of Jesus. Magnify, come glorify Christ Jesus the King. Majesty, worship his majesty, Jesus who died, now glorify, king of all kings. Kingdom authority flow from his throne unto his own. What does that mean? What is kingdom authority? Do you know? Signs and wonders. It's exactly what it is. It is exactly right. So what that is, is the theological underpinnings of what we are going to look at here next in the second wave of Pentecostalism is the idea that you remember Jesus went about doing miracles, miracles that find their uh, prophetic um, predictions often in the book of Isaiah. And when so when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he meant is that it is here in the presence of the king himself. 
And the evidence of that is that the, the um, kingdom powers that are being demonstrated to you, okay? the healing of the sick and so forth, uh, precursors, precurses the, the, um, the great blessings of his kingdom when disease and sickness are banished and things like that. Okay? So for Hayford, um, that authority has now broken into the here and the now, and the you and the I uh, have access to it. That's kind of how it works. Oh, let me, let me um, before we get to the second wave, let me just roll out one more guy. I don't, I don't have his picture, which is too bad. 1968, Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith is the founder of Calvary Chapel. He left the International Church of the Foursquare to start Calvary Chapel. Okay, so Amy, so here's the, here's the family tree. It's Amy Semple McPherson to Jack Hayford to Chuck Smith. Behind the Foursquare Church lies Wesleyan theology. What lies behind the Calvary Chapel movement and the Foursquare movement is Wesleyan theology. Now, uh, as, as we said, uh, many Calvary Chapel churches are probably more Keswick now than, than out and out Wesleyan um, because Calvary Chapel doesn't have a very tight theological grip on itself. But anyway... The, the, those are, that's, that's where the stream flows. Those are the branches that flow out from it. Okay. That's where they come from. I, ideas have consequences. Often not seen for a long time. All right, so here we are. Second wave. That's first wave was Pentecostalism. Second wave. Um, 1960 to 1982, right? First wave, 1906 to 1960. So something happened in 1960 that uh, is a marking point for what's called the second wave of Pentecostalism. Okay, so here it is. Whereas the Pentecostal movement was for the most part, okay, catch this, a separate movement outside of the mainline denominations. The second wave or charismatic movement was very much a mainstreaming of Pentecostal theology. Beginning in 1951, I'll save how to speak in tongues We'll get to that. That's so much fun. We'll get to that. That's another rabbit trail we'll follow here. We have this gentleman. 1951, Demo Shakarian, a Southern California millionaire businessman, launched the Full Gospel Businessman's Fellowship International. Has any of you ever been invited or attended a Full Gospel Businessman's Luncheon? Anybody besides me? Never, huh? You were invited? Okay. Anybody else invited even? Really? You know guys who have gone. Okay. Yeah. So he's the one who who launched this and and, and bankrolled it. Whose stated purpose, whose stated purpose was to spread the Pentecostal message of tongues and healing via non-sectarian luncheons and conferences. On April 3rd, in 1960, the charismatic movement went public when Father Dennis Bennett, an Episcopal priest, announced to his Van Nuys, California, again, notice the connections, Van Nuys, California congregation that he had personally spoken in tongues and that he believed that this was the pattern for the church. Later in 1966, the charismatic movement penetrated the Roman Catholic Church, 
where it was readily received by a lady and clergy opened by Vatican II to new ideas on church renewal. So the charismatic movement had no trouble at all inserting itself into the DNA of the Catholic Church. Okay? The charismatic movement differs from old-line Pentecostalism in several significant ways, including a rejection of the necessity of speaking in tongues. This is probably the defining difference between Pentecostal and Charismatics. All right. Charismatics reject the necessity of speaking in tongues. The Pentecostals affirm that it is necessary. It is the work, uh, it is the sign of the, uh, the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit. It's a sign of the baptism of the Spirit. Okay. Uh, however, tongues speaking does remain a very important element in most charismatic circles. Today, the charismatic movement has penetrated every mainline denomination and has affected virtually every church in the world. And although the charismatic movement is far from a monolith, it does exhibit certain distinctives, such as experiencing Jesus in a personal encounter puts one into the position of receiving the baptism of the Spirit, which allows the individual to have Jesus not as, just as Savior, but as Lord. Okay. So this notion that Jesus can be your Savior and not your Lord, you need to make him your Lord. You make him your Lord, that is the second work of grace. It happens at the baptism of the Spirit. Often speaking in tongues accompanies it. And now Jesus is Lord of your life. Before that, you're a carnal Christian. Power is gained through the baptism of the Spirit, and it brings victorious Christian living. That's kind of a, it's got some Keswick flavor to it. Worship is at a higher dimension because of the baptism of the Spirit. Prayer is more fervent and successful, including prayer in unknown tongues because of the baptism of the Spirit. The sign gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 are meant for the church today. New revelation is given today as God speaks directly and regularly to his people, just like in the first century. The Bible is exalted and believed as a source of divine revelation, although, quote, God reveals deeper truths to those who have the anointing, close to quote. Demonic activity, greatly emphasized, as well as the Christian's need to engage in deliverance ministries. And finally, evangelism is emphasized and practiced based upon the baptism of the Spirit, granting greater power and effectiveness to one's witness. So these are the general characteristics of charismatic theology. Okay? No good? All right. Well, let's take a little sidetrack here. And... How to speak in tongues. Doesn't that sound? Okay, so I'll show you tonight how to do it. You ready? You, ready? you think I'm kidding you? I'm not. I'm not kidding you. I'm going to tell you how to do it. If you don't do it after this, it's up to you. Okay. Yeah, sure. I'm not going to be here. Do whatever you want. Okay, I mean, I'm just going to, it's too long to read entirely. I'm just going to dip into it a little bit. Um, okay, uh, have you ever thought of, through the mechanics of speech? Question. You with your own vocal organs have to do the speaking. The same mechanics that are involved in speaking in English or any other known language are involved in speaking in tongues. For instance, if I say, I love the Lord Yahshua, what I did mechanically, what did I mechanically do? I moved my lips, I moved my tongue, I moved my throat, I made a sound, and I had to think. All this is involved in the mechanics of speech. 
You say audibly, I love the Lord Yeshua. What did you do? You moved your lips, your throat, your tongue to speak. You formulated the words, you pushed them out. The only difference between speaking in tongues and speaking in English is that when I say I love the Lord Yeshua, I have to think. <laughs> you know where I'm going, don't you? Well, when I speak in tongues, I don't have to think about the words that I speak. The Spirit, Yahweh, gives the words to my spirit and I formulate them on my lips. I do not think the words, but they are there when I move my lips, my throat, and my tongue. Okay? Open your mouth wide and breathe in. <gasps> Am I going to do this alone? Come on. You are not going to receive anything more spiritually. You are now going to bring into evidence the spirit who lives within you. Just breathe in. Open your mouth wide. While you are breathing in, thank Yahweh for having filled you with the fullness of the power of his Holy Spirit. Don't beg him. Thank him for it. When you speak in tongues, move your lips, throat, and tongue. Speak forth. When you have finished one sound, speak another. Do not pay any attention to what you are thinking. You formulate the words, you move your lips, throat, and tongue, and you say it. You are magnifying Yahweh no matter what the words sound like to your ears. It is your part to speak in tongues. It is Yahweh's part to give the utterance. Keep moving your lips, throat, and tongue. Formulate another sound. You have to formulate the sounds differently on your lips. Father has given them to your spirit. They are in your spirit coming on your tongue. You have to speak them out. You are speaking wonderful works of Yahweh. You are magnifying Yahweh. You are speaking in tongues. The eternal manifestation is your proof in the senses in the senses world that you have in Christ, the anointed one within. The external manifestation is your proof. Sorry, Christ is your head. You are his body. Get bold on it. Let it flow out. Let it effervesce. Out of the belly shall flow rivers of living water. Keep on speaking. Yahweh is giving the words to your spirit. Your spirit is bringing them up to your throat, and you are bringing them out. Breathe in deeply, and now begin to speak in tongues, just as I have instructed you. Oh, that's not specific enough, so let's get a little more specific. How to actively speak in tongues. Okay. By the way, I did not look super hard to find this stuff. Okay. Are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? How do you actively speak in tongues? There is a heavenly prayer language available to every believer who has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. This language is referred to as praying in the Spirit, praying in tongues, speaking in tongues. How do you start? Speaking in tongues can be activated at any time after receiving the baptism of the Spirit. To activate speaking in tongues, simply switch over from praying in your native language to praying in your heavenly language by speaking out loud the syllables coming from your spirit. It may sound foolish at first, but that's okay. Keep going. The more you pray in tongues, the more developed the language will become. It will become easier and easier to switch over to praying in tongues. It will become quite literally a second language to you. The spiritual language exists in every believer who has been filled with the Holy Spirit. No doubt that it's there inside you. Don't doubt that, it says. The ability to pray in tongues is there, but you have to activate it. You have to speak. The Holy Spirit will not take control of your mouth. You have to move your jaw, your tongue, in, and speak out the syllables from your spirit. If you've never prayed or to receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit, stop now and ask the Lord for this incredible gift. Um, how do you activate it? Some people start praying in tongues as soon as they're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is ideal and available to everyone right away, but some people struggle to use their prayer language immediately because of bad teaching they've received in the past about speaking in tongues. If this is you, it's okay. Here are some tips to help you activate it. Begin by to thank God that he has given you the ability to speak in tongues. Keep praising him and thanking him in your native language. As you discern certain sounds coming up out of your spirit, begin to speak them out. 
turn on praise music, begin to worship God. As you do, relax your tongue, allow the syllables to come out. Read the written word until you feel another language bubbling up. Begin to speak that out loud. Listen to someone else praying in tongues and try to mimic their language until your own language is coming out. Yours will not be the same as theirs, but sometimes this helps. Praying in your native tongue until you sense another language arising. Relax your tongue and jaw and begin to speak out. Uh, ask another spirit-filled believer to pray in tongues with you. The more you practice it, the more natural it becomes. It's like learning another language. First, it just sounds like a few broken up syllables. Eventually, you become fluent in speaking it. Keep it up. Uh, cannot be taught because everyone has their own unique prayer language. This language is from the spirit, not man. No human can teach you this language. However, listening to someone else pray in tongues can help you get started if you're struggling to activate the gift. You can mimic another person's tongues at first if that helps you, but ultimately your prayer language will sound different from anyone else's. You will know your own language has taken over. How do I know? At first, you may not be sure if the sounds coming out of your mouth are really tongues. You'll have thoughts like, I'm just making this stuff up. That's common. Just keep going. (laughs) Your brain cannot understand what is going on. Just keep practicing. Sooner than later, you will know for sure that this is your prayer language. It's your own unique language, so it will not sound the same as other people when they pray in their tongue, but it will sound like your language. You'll know you're speaking in tongues because it will start to sound like a language. Every time you pray in tongues, it will sound very similar to the last time you spoke in tongues. Not exactly the same, if not exactly the same. This is your unique language. You're speaking directly to God. Oh, what else do we want? You get the idea. You get the idea. Uh, it is a lot of work. Uh, exactly. She's probably been speaking in tongues this whole time and you didn't recognize it. Take that off the... Uh... Uh, I do, actually. I'm, thank you for asking me that because I'm going to get to that. I, should have, I actually should have dealt with that in the, in the Pentecostal, because this is more common with Pentecostals. Okay, so this is out of our, uh, Christian History Magazine, issue 45. Uh, this is eyewitness accounts of the signs and wonders at early camp meetings on the Western frontier. Okay, so this has been the Western frontier of the U.S. Um, 1847, autobiography. These are various manifestations of the Spirit. Okay, so here they are. Falling. The falling exercise was very common among all classes, the saints and sinners of every age and every grade, from the philosopher to the clown. The subject of this exercise would generally, with a piercing scream, fall like a log on the floor, earth, or mud, and appear as dead. At a meeting, two, um, they use the word gay, um, it had its prior meaning, uh, joyful young ladies, sisters, both fell with a shriek of distress and lay for more than an hour, apparently in a lifeless state, a lifeless state. At length, they began to exhibit symptoms of life by crying uh, fervently for mercy and then relapsed into the same death-like state with an awful gloom on their countenances. After a while, the gloom on the face of one was succeeded by a heavenly smile, and she cried out, Precious Jesus, and rose up and spoke of the love of God. Okay? Here's another one called the jerks. (laughs) It's, It's really hard for me, I mean, honestly. Sometimes the subject of the jerks would be affected in some one member of the body, and sometimes in the whole system. When the head alone was affected, it would be jerked backward and forward or from side to side so quickly that the features of the face could not be distinguished. 
When the whole system was affected, I have seen the person stand in one place and jerk backward and forward in quick succession, their, their, <laughs> their head nearly touching the floor behind and before. Have you ever gone on YouTube and, and, and looked at any of these things? I mean, all right, they're demonic looking to me. I mean, they are... Oh, yeah, absolutely. All of these things are common across pagan mystery religions. Uh, dancing. Dancing exercise generally began with the jerks, and then the jerks would cease. The smile of heaven alone shone on the countenance of the subject, and assimilated to angels appeared in the whole person. Sometimes the motion was quick and sometimes slow, thus they continued to move forward and backward in the same track or alley till nature seemed exhausted. They'd fall prostrate on the floor of the earth. Barking, the barking exercise, as opposers contemptuously called it, was nothing but the jerks. A person affected with the jerks would often make a grunt or bark, if you please, from the suddenness of the jerk. Laughing, it was a loud, hearty laughter, but one that excited laughter in no one else. No kidding. The appearance appeared rapturously solemn, and his laughter exceedingly solemn in saints and sinners. It's totally indescribable. I've seen it. And it is demonic. Running. The running exercises was nothing more than persons who, feeling something of these bodily agitations through fear, attempted to run away and thus escape from them. But it commonly happened that they ran not far before they fell or became so greatly agitated that they could proceed no further. And the last one was singing. The singing exercise is more unaccountable than anything else I've ever seen. The subject, in a very happy state of mind, would sing most melodiously, not from the mouth or the nose, but entirely in the breast, the sounds issuing thence. Such music silenced everything and attracted the attention of all. It was most heavenly. None could ever be tired of hearing it. Revival meetings on the Western frontier. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Okay, third wave. Third wave, 1982 to the present. Third wave or Signs and Wonders movements originated in 1982 with John Wimber, 1934-1997, when he left his association with Calvary Chapels to pastor a church in Anaheim, California called The Vineyard. Also in 1982, Wimber began teaching a class at Fuller Seminary called Signs, Wonders, and Church Growth, which as part of the class time included healing the sick and casting out demons. What <laughs> a wild class. It was in the context of Fuller Seminary that Wimber connected with C. Peter Wagner, another uh, character, an expert on church growth from the Fuller World School of Missions, who in 1983 coined the names First, Second, and Third Waves. Wimber was of the view that present evangelism is not truly effective because it is not accompanied by, quote, the inbreaking of the kingdom, close quote, and signs wonders, and was true of Je as was true of Jesus' ministry. If we could just do the kind of stuff Jesus did, our evangelism would be more effective. Stop and think about that for a minute. How effective was Jesus' evangelism? How effective was Jesus' evangelism? 120 people in an upper room three years later. 120 people in an upper room three years later. Maybe, maybe uh, you know, pull in Galilee and, you know, 500. Okay. I mean, what's effective, right? You could, you could rightfully ask the question, what's effective? Define effective. But if it's being defined as most people define it, 
Not very many people. He had all kinds of signs and wonders happening. <laughs> Wimber coined the term power encounters for these supernatural manifestations of God in the life of Christ. Under Wimber's leadership in the Anaheim Vineyard Church grew rapidly, spawned thousands of other vineyard churches which are affiliated in the Association of Vineyard Churches. This association produces its own statement of faith, has its own leadership, and in many ways acts as a denomination. For example, in 1995, the leadership of the Vineyard Association disfellowshipped the Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship for their unbiblical practices connected with the Toronto Blessing, which were these kinds of things that we just read about, jerking, parking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Although the Vineyard Association is neither Pentecostal nor charismatic in a classic sense, they do hold a number of doctoral positions that are concerning. Sign gifts. They believe the gifts of prophecy, tongues, healings, and miracles are all continuing today. Uh, spiritual warfare movement. They believe that Christians can be demon-possessed. Pardon me. They are very highly ecumenical. Experience rather than doctrine draws people to the movement. Power evangelism. They believe that, that for evangelism to be truly effective, especially in third world settings, it must be accompanied by signs and wonders. Okay? So second, third wave of Pentecostalism. Right? We've all been affected by it. Right? So, does that mean that no good at all has come of it? No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. But there are significant dangers that all begin with aberrant theology at the beginning. So, as the root, so will the fruit. Okay? All right. By the way, it's always... Uh, Always cracks me up that these, all these healing ministries, like these guys with glasses, and you know what I'm saying? Wimber had heart problems. I mean, it's just. <laughs> okay. Distinguished looking gentleman, huh? All right. See, neo-orthodoxy, and we will finish with this. That is Karl Barth. So, see, neo-orthodoxy. Neo or new orthodoxy is a loose term used to designate certain forms of 20th century Protestant theology that has sought to recover the distinctive insights and themes of the Reformation. The movement came in reaction to the bankrupt emphasis of the liberal theology, which had reduced Christianity to social action and moral truth by a steady diet of historical criticism and evolutionary theories of religion. Neo-Orthodoxy exploded on the scene in 1919 with the publication of the German theologian Karl Barth. Right? It's not Barth, it's Barth. Karl Barth. Okay? Here's his picture. Okay? His commentary on Romans um, made a big splash in, in the uh, academic world. Neo-Orthodoxy stresses the return to the themes of the transcendence of God, man's responsibilities as a creature, sin and guilt, the uniqueness of Christ as mediator between God and man, the need for a personal encounter with God in Revelation, and the primacy of Scripture. So that sounds pretty good. But the heresies of Neo-Orthodoxy is that it denies the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative nature of Scripture. Neo-Orthodoxy teaches that man meets God in the Scripture and that the Scripture becomes God's revelation to an individual at that point of crisis. 
Thus, neo-orthodoxy denies the idea that God communicates to man through propositional truth. It becomes the word of God to you. It's not objectively the word of God. For example, this is from Charles Riley's Basic Theology. Neo-orthodoxy takes sin very seriously. It is defined as self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness. However, the account of Adam's sin in Genesis 3 is not seen as historical in that it was an actual event that happened at a certain time and in a particular place. Adam was not a real individual who actually lived on this earth, yet Adam represents man at every stage of his development. The story of Adam's fall is the story of us all. That's neo-orthodoxy. Okay, so it's close, but Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, not in theology. Okay. Look on page 81 of your syllabus. And let's see, 81. I have for you this evangelical theories on inerrancy. Okay. So, this kind of just we'll go through it really quickly, but you can kind of see how it plays itself out. So, the position of complete inerrancy uh, on the right. The Bible is fully true in all it teaches or affirms. This extends to the areas of both history and science. It does not hold that the Bible has a primary purpose to present exact information concerning history and science. Okay, it's not a history book, it's not a science book. Therefore, the use of popular expressions, approximations, and phenomenological language is acknowledged and is believed to fulfill the requirement of truthfulness. If you take the hermeneutics class this fall with Jeff, then he will make this eminently uh, plain and clear to you. Okay? Apparent discrepancies, therefore, can and must be harmonized. It is phenomenological language. The sun rises. We talk about a sunrise all the time. We never talk about an earth turn. What a beautiful earth turn. Right? We talk about a sunrise. That's phenomenological language. Okay? The Bible speaks in the same way. So, some of the proponents of it are uh, Harold Linzel, okay? founder of Fuller Seminary, one of the founders. Uh, Roger Nicole, um, well-known um, um, Reformed theologian. Uh, Millard Erickson, also a uh, well-known theologian, writer of a, a good systematic theology. Limited inerrancy. The Bible is inerrant only in its salvific doctrinal teachings. The Bible was not intended to teach science or history, nor did God reveal matters of history or science to the writers. In these areas, the Bible reflects the understanding of its culture and may therefore contain errors. Okay, so proponents of this uh, were uh, Daniel Fuller, who was uh, dean of... Fuller Theological Seminary, right? He's the son of his father, his founding father, Charles. Stephen Davis and William Lesore, also from Fuller Theological Seminary. You're going to see Fuller's names all through this list, okay? They are the premier seminary that, that has um, championed neo-orthodoxy in American evangelicalism. It's a very large school and, and um, has trained many, many people. Interesting of purpose. The Bible is without error in, it, in accomplishing its primary purpose of bringing people into personal fellowship with Christ. The Scriptures, therefore, are truthful or inerrant only in that they accomplish their primary purpose, not by being factual or accurate in what they assert. This view is similar to the 
irrelevancy of inerrancy view, which is below. Here you find uh, Jack Rogers from Fuller Theological Seminary and James Orr, a Scottish theologian of the late 19th century. Okay. James Orr. And then uh, irrelevance of inerrancy. Inerrancy is essentially irrelevant for a variety of reasons. It's a negative concept. Our view of Scripture should be positive. Inerrancy is an unbiblical concept. Error in the Scriptures is a spiritual or moral matter, not an intellectual one. Inerrancy focuses our attention on minutia rather than on the primary concerns of Scripture. Inerrancy hinders honest evaluation of the Scriptures. Inerrancy creates disunity in the church. Okay? That is a bunch of weasel words designed to, to um, cloud the issue. Uh, David Hubbard, president of Fuller Theological Seminary, 1963 to 1993, 30 years at the helm, okay, to put his thumbprint on this thing. Present um, President Richard um, Moo, 1993 to the present. Uh, actually, he's been replaced by somebody just recently. I can't remember who now, but also held this position. So I would say this is Fuller's position. The inerrancy is irrelevant. Okay? So. Okay. Yeah, we need to close it up. Where do we go from here? Evangelicalism is in flux. 1990 Christianity Today ran a front-page story called The Evangelical Megashift. After the hopeful and promising years of the moral majority, that was the word I was, I was trying to remember, under um, Jerry Falwell, thank you, and the Christian Coalition, uh, the conservative element of Christianity is in retreat again, and governmental policy seems ev ever more anti-Christian than ever. By the way, I wrote these words 20 years ago. Theologically, evangelicalism is coming apart at the seams. The Reformed doctrines of substitutionary atonement, penal understanding of the cross, forensic justification, imputed righteousness, eternal suffering, God's sovereignty, election, and providence are all in decline and have continued to be in decline. The average man or woman in the pew knows little about the Bible or theology, and if the Barner polls are to be believed, are to be believed, leads a life that is not radically different from his or her Christian, non-Christian neighbor. Mark 8:34, Jesus said that we must pick up our cross and follow him. In other words, we must live in such a way that we are different from the rest of the world. The results of which may well bring the church in America under persecution for the first time in her history. But remember this. The words of Tertullian, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We're done. Unless you have questions. Okay. It was fast, I know. If you're interested in pursuing any of these topics further, let's talk. I can recommend some stuff for you to read and pursue. Okay. All right. Recently, the term evangelical has become very political. It means you, you know, the Republican, yep. pro-Trump. Yep. Is there another term that is better? <laughs> a term better than evangelical, yeah. yeah. Evangelical has been become like a wax nose. It's just put and pushed all over the place, becomes whatever you want it to be. So for some, they're draped in a, in a, in a certain political ideology, whether it's Trumpism or something else um, it certainly um, is used widely by those uh, who are now engaged in, in um, really kind of a Marxist idea of social justice and, and so forth 
So uh, I have struggled long and hard about like what to call myself. Am I an evangelical? Is that what I would say that I am? And because it's a good word, and, and in one sense, I'm, I hate to give it up. Um, but I think if you push me, I would say I'm an imputationist. That's my name. That, that's, that's my stripe. Okay? I'm an imputationist. And um, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right? The imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us and our sin to him. Um, the advantage of being an imputationist is it is a very thin slice and it's bound to provoke a question or two from somebody. Like, what is that? And then I have an opportunity to tell them. Because if I tell them I'm an evangelical, man, they already know what they think I am. An, an, an amputationist? <laughs> that would be another term, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Second Corinthians 5.21. And an imputationalist is not original with me. R.C. Sproul coined the term himself when he was struggling before he passed as to what to identify himself as. Okay? It's just become so muddled, and we didn't have time to go into it, but the, but the whole movement together of ecumenicalism. Basically, the, 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 the position of much of evangelicalism is that Luther woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and that this whole thing was just a serious mistake and, and needs to be undone. And and J.I. Packer, um, Chuck Colson, I mean, there's a whole, Bill Bright, a lot of those guys, um, most of whom are gone now, but were very instrumental 25 years ago in promoting this idea of, of evangelical Catholic cooperation, whether it was for um, joint social um, ministry, you know, opposition to abortion and things like that. Or, but it really came down to a flattening of theology down to, you know, um, sort of the barest minimum of a, of a doctrinal statement, which would be something like, um, I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? And that was kind of it without any distinction. And, and honestly, it, uh, it, has created a lot of problems for people. Um, if you get a copy of the fundamentals, which I recommend to you, by the way, get a copy. It's bound in a, in a single volume. Uh, it's been published by Biola for years and years. I don't remember who's publishing it now. Someone else picked it up. It's not super expensive, paperback. But in there, uh, there are articles about um, Roman Catholicism and the Antichrist. <laughs> I mean, that was 100 years ago the, what people thought. And and if you say that now out loud, people look at you like you are some kind of, you know, Neanderthal or something. Westminster. Westminster Confession, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were serious. This is another gospel. It's a false gospel. And yet, um, and as far as Rome's concerned, uh, Rome is happy to welcome us back. Yeah. Separated brothers. Separated brothers, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you've got the new perspectives on Paul, which is another attempt at bringing essentially Roman Catholic theology in. So, yes. Yeah, I mean, Bill Bennett, you remember him? Former Secretary of Education, wrote that book, uh, Book of Virtues. 
I lost a million dollars gambling in Las Vegas. That guy? Yeah. Well, and that, yes. Even in evangelistic encounters, we can't assume common understanding of the same words. We, we are far closer to the pagan culture that Paul uh, ministered into. And if, you, and if you, it's instructive to read the book of Acts, read Paul's sermons to the pagans and notice his approach. His approach is to, is to go back to creation and roll it forward. When he preached to the Jews, he went to the law. When he preached to the pagans, he went to creation and began there. And so uh, we're surrounded by pagans. So you you know you got to start way long way back and begin to build this thing slowly. So the idea that you're just going to walk up to them, knock on their door, ask them about the four spiritual laws, or or you know hit them with the Ten Commandments, and they're going to instantly repent and understand everything you're talking about, I think is is not realistic. Doesn't mean that God doesn't save, right? I mean, not limiting how He can and, and does save, but I think. I think we need to be like the men of Issachar. We need to understand our times. We live in a time of, of um, a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.